You're listening to The Onset of refreshing, inspiring, and relatable outdoor stories and conversations with your host, Elizabeth Brownell. The Onset Podcast, part of the OKS Podcast Network. Think I can fly. Think I can fly. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Onset Podcast with your host, Elizabeth Brownell, aka Rookie Hunting. This is going to be episode six, and the last week we kind of dove into beginner hunting techniques, but for whitetail specifically. So this week we're going to be focusing on, again, beginner hunting techniques, what it's like if you're unexperienced, but specifically for waterfowl which is going to be your your ducks, your geese, anything like that. For me, I started hunting, you know, deer and then turkey. And so to add on to, you know, to try waterfowl was just such, honestly, it was a mindfuck, right? Like, it's just totally different. Um, and everyone has their own opinions of what's better, what's more fun, or what's more rewarding, right? But waterfowl is, I feel like, in its own, it's its own breed of of hunting. And so I had Julia Gibson on this podcast episode, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I think we get into, again, a general broad overview, but there's definitely some tips to take away from this episode. Also, this week's episode, we are going to try something new. I think something that everyone can kind of relate to is like a rookie move, a rookie hunting story, a rookie mistake even. I think when you start hunting, or even if you've been doing it your whole life, there are sometimes like you're just gonna have a rookie move, you're gonna make a rookie mistake. And I wanna start sharing those stories. So if you're listening and you have a story in mind, definitely um, hit up the Onset podcast on Instagram and submit your story for a chance to be featured in an episode. And you'll also get sent um, a rookie hunting like sticker pack. So the first of many rookie mistakes, rookie moves, um, I did get quite a couple submitted, um, but the one I'm going to go with is from at Grizzle31. So when I first tried turkey hunting, I dropped off into the woods with all my gear, which was way too much stuff. I had no clue what I was doing. My face was completely covered in black face paint. I had no idea how to position decoys or use a call. A complete beginner with way too much stuff. Got kind of set up and hit the call one time, and a doe started blowing at me. I had no idea what that sound was. I didn't know deer even made sounds. It freaked me out so bad, I thought something was going to try to attack me. I grabbed all of my stuff and ran out of the woods. And I I definitely laughed out loud because the first time I heard a doe blow, again, like I had no idea that, you know, they even made those sounds. And it was right... I mean, it was as I was still getting uh, down from a tree out of my self-climber, but it was already, like, pitch black. Like, I had waited kind of too long to, like, I don't know what I was thinking that day, but um, so it was pitch black. I'm trying to get out of my tree, and I swear to you, this doe was, like, five feet behind my tree. Like, it was the loudest noise I had ever heard, and I about fell out of my tree and pissed my pants, so... The story definitely resonated with me. Um, It's just a weird noise if you've never heard it before. So I want to say thank you um, for submitting that. And again, if you guys have any stories, definitely hit me up. I would love to share these. I think they're relatable and I think it's something we can all look back and like laugh at now. 
I did want to say thank you to all the listeners out there. Um, I've definitely been feeling the love and support. And however you're listening, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, there's so many platforms I honestly had no idea even existed before I started this podcast. However you're listening, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, um, even if it's not five stars, like give me your constructive criticism. I really am trying to like feel this thing out and like hear what you guys want to hear and listen to. So please leave a review. It's greatly appreciated. And I hope you guys enjoy episode six. All right. Welcome to episode six of the Onset Podcast. I'm here with Julia Gibson, um, who is the 2023 National Ms. United States Agriculture. Um, She also is starting a program called Guns and Gals, um, which is a waterfowl kind of to get women into it. So uh, we're here to talk like very rookie, like waterfowl. Like if you've never hunted birds before, like this is a conversation you're going to want to listen to. Um, She grew up hunting and then, you know, as an adult kind of started doing it on her own. And from my perspective, like I started hunting deer and then kind of got into waterfowl. So um, I think we both have like some really good questions for you all today. And again, um, Julia, thanks for coming on here. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I'm excited to be here, excited to chat and just share some information for these girls that are interested in getting involved in the waterfowl industry. You want to, um, do you want to touch a little bit on guns and gals and, um, what you expect that to look like this year? Yeah, absolutely. So it started as kind of a pipe dream of wanting to hunt with women and only hunting with my buddies, only hunting with my dad, my brother, and then just friends that would allow me to go. Um, and then I had one experience. I was snow goose hunting with an outfitter, kind of helping them out. Um, and, and an outfitter actually brought his girlfriend to hunt as a client. And that's been my only experience hunting with females. So this year I decided to just kind of take the leap. And I just heard more and more women talking about wanting to get involved, but maybe they were embarrassed or ashamed or, or maybe they have a boyfriend, but the boyfriend goes and it's a guy's thing only. And so the girl doesn't want to intrude you know, whatever that looks like, I just saw a need for more opportunities, uh, maybe some financially, uh, more financially accessible opportunities to do so as well. And so um, with my family, family land, and just my experience, I decided to put on um, seven all female hunts this winter between December and January, uh, one of which is in Northwest Missouri, and the other six are in Northeast Arkansas. My family has um, a a couple of spots. Um, One of them is 150 acres of flooded timber off the St. Francis, uh, just outside of Paragold, Arkansas. And so I've also partnered with a family friend, him and his dad own a lodge. um, And they've been super generous and gracious enough to let us partner with them um, to give these girls a really good deal. So we're going to bring them out. There's three to four girls on each of these hunts. Uh, We're going to bring them out. We're going to take them hunting. Um, I'm actually the guide. My dad will be around for, you know, um, any other needs that I can't necessarily manage while trying to guide in the middle of a blonde or timber. But um, it it truly is an all-female hunt 
Um, and so I'm super excited about that. I've got some great partnerships with some great brands that are helping provide these girls with gear at an accessible and affordable price, um, providing some gear for some giveaway baskets. We're doing eight giveaway baskets. Seven of them are just like kind of knickknack t-shirts, hats, uh, stuff like that. And then one big giveaway that'll have some pretty good surprises in it to help get girls started. So that sounds like an awesome program. And I like that you said it's an all like female um, hunt. I, I got invited to, it was a women's hunt like, for like a youth girls hunt. Um, and it was out in Missouri. Um, and the only thing I didn't like about it is, was that like the guides were still men, you know? And like, we were there as like adults, like mentoring, like the girls, but like still like the guides were men. And like, I, you know, waterfowl for me, it's, I've, I'm definitely, I'm lucky when people invite me. Um, it's something that, although, you know, I started hunting deer and turkey by myself, I feel like waterfowl hands down is the hardest kind of hunting to get into, um, on your own. And so I feel like I've learned so much going with friends, but really like it is a hard thing to do by yourself. And so I definitely don't know how to call or anything like that. I could never guide. Um, but I kind of was hoping that on like the all girls hunt, like it would kind of be like, right, like an all girls hunt. So that was like the only thing. So that's really cool. Like that's like the direction you're going in. That sounds like it's going to be a really like rewarding program. I'm super. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited for a few other reasons. Um, first off, each of these women's hunts have at least one other experienced waterfowler as well. Mm -hmm. And so with there being three to four girls total, that what lines us up really well to have an experienced hunter with an unexperienced hunter and to really be able to partner and create like longstanding relationships outside of just these hunts as well. Um, I think another thing that you mentioned with the guides being men, I, I would like to preface by saying everything that I've learned about waterfowl hunting up until this point has been from men. And so I, I don't count that at all, but I still am really excited that I can truly say, hey, this is a women only hunt. We are doing the dang thing. We're making it happen. Um, and And beyond that, I also would like, like to preface by saying that there are so many organizations that are bringing women together for these hunts um and and whatever that looks like for everyone i personally um can't afford to build all of my hunting experience through spending money to go to an outfitter and so uh, i also think that there are times when uh, i've hunted with an outfitter once uh one outfitter actually um uh, and I just, I think from listening to people talk and have conversations, I feel like when you go on a guided hunt, there isn't as much of that learning aspect. And so I think one thing that sets guns and gals apart is that there is that learning opportunity to actually gain the knowledge that one would need foundationally to go and hunt by themselves. So how to set that decoy spread, gun safety, uh, when is the right time to go? how do you deal with situations that, you know, maybe are dangerous or, or how to gain the confidence and comfortability to go and hunt by yourself. Those things are conversations. Those things are resources that are being created, such as this podcast to share that information with women moving forward. And so, um, 
did I start off hunting by myself? No, I didn't. I, <laughs> there's a lot of things that uh, I didn't know or wasn't comfortable with going into that to be able to confidently go and, and make sure that I would be safe in doing so. And so being able to bring these women together and teach them, it's like that saying you can, you can feed someone fish for a day, or you can teach them how to fish and feed them for, you know, the rest of their life. And it's the same type of concept with these women's hunts. Yeah. And that's awesome that that's been your experience. And now you get to kind of take it to the next level and like teach other people as well. So a lot of those topics we are going to get into um, in this conversation. So, you know, for the intro, we kind of wanted to discuss the differences um, between hunting waterfowl and big game. Like we mentioned earlier, waterfowl is a whole nother beast. Um, in my opinion, it's I, it's just, it's different um, and it hits different. And I think it's definitely um, where big game hunting can be like a solitary thing. I think uh, waterfowl is a very social thing. And so in that aspect, I think it's on one hand, I think it's easy to get people interested in it because it's more of like a kind of a fun social thing. You get to like hang out with your friends like while you're doing it. Um, but also I feel like it has a different perception sometimes. Um, I know kind of before I started hunting waterfowl, I kind of, I wasn't sure about the, and I want to like, I want to kind of talk delicately because I don't want to paint it in a bad light or anything, but there is kind of a perception of waterfowl hunting where um, some of those birds are going to waste and either you're crippling them and then you can't find them. Um, you have a certain kind of bird called divers where like they will, when they are injured, they'll go underwater, they'll hold on to some grass and they, they will die down there essentially. Like, so you don't find those birds either. Um, there's some conservation hunts where like you have people killing like hundreds of birds and like they're not utilizing the meat. Um, so there is, you know, so I don't want to say controversial, but I feel like that is kind of a topic that gets brought up. And it's something that um, I've seen, you know, personally while hunting, it's like, even if you have a dog, like, you know, sometimes you don't find those birds and like that, you know, is kind of a tough thing sometimes. Um, do you want to talk on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that some of the differences in big game versus waterfowl is like the social social aspect versus the solitude. Um, and I would tend to agree, especially going out with my friends and hunting, there is that social aspect. Um, I think that especially this past season, I would almost categorize my season as a solid, like a solitude or solitary, I guess, experience uh, because I was hunting by myself. And it almost forced me to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, but I will also say that as far as perceptions go, and this, I guess this part of the intro and conversation stemmed from a conversation I had with um, one of my really good friends um, who has absolutely never been hunting ever. Um, and, and she was asking me, you know, there's pictures or I see videos on social media um of birds still flapping while someone's carrying them or i see piles in pictures or just from someone who has never hunted before you you don't always understand what the picture means and so i think as hunters 
some of that mis misconception and those perceptions are because of social media and how hunting is painted on there. And, and from a hunter's perspective, you're proud of the work that you've put in. You're proud of the, those piles. You're proud of that game, that big game that you shot. And I think it's just really important to remember that not everyone on social media has ever hunted. And at the end of the day, hunter as hunters, we're responsible for how our sport is perceived. And so I think that individual, like individually and as individuals, obviously, you know, I, I have a picture of the turkey that I killed, or I have pictures of the birds that I've killed. And I'm proud of that. But I also realized in talking to my friends who have never hunted that that's not always the story behind it isn't always obvious. It's not always understood. And so I think this year, something that I'm really focusing on is the work leading up to it and highlighting that a lot more than, you know, the piles at the end of the day. And so um, it was just a really in interesting conversation that I had with her about what she's seeing on social media and what things mean, or, you know, are they letting the birds suffer? Are they letting, you know, the deer just like, you know, is, is it a kill shot or is it a, an ethical shot or, is the bird way too high in the air for you to actually kill it? Are you just hurting it and crippling it? And so um, those are just some things that I've noticed through through conversations that I don't always keep front of mind. And so it's been a good learning experience going into this season. For sure. And I think from, you know, the perspective I have, it's like I, before I started hunting, I had no idea what like any of it meant. So, you know, I, I remember like, seeing people like post like pictures with their dead animals and I'm like oh that's so messed up like I just had like the worst I had the worst uh perception of hunters and hunting and I think it was definitely worse when I saw a pile of birds versus like a hunter with one deer I'm like wow like they just killed that many birds I didn't understand um, I didn't understand that there are specific seasons. You have to buy specific tags. I didn't understand there are specific limits. Um, and that all varies um, on different, even different types of ducks. Like I had no idea that that it's, and I feel like waterfowl, it's a federally protected, um, you know, kind of hunt. So it's completely different. And I feel like the penalties are a lot stricter as well. Um, it's just a whole different ball game. Um, I guess we kind of were going to get into like timing, um, which is kind of covering seasons, um, time of the day, if you're unaware of waterfowl hunting and like what that kind of looks like, um, how long is a hunt typically going to take limits, um, and the resources for those things. So we can get into that if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I would start out by saying and prefacing it with it all depends on where you're at and what you're hunting, not only what as in species, but what as in private versus public, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Um, specifically, the Department of Con Conservation or for Arkansas, it's Arkansas Game and Fish. Um, that looks different as far as opening, season openings, limits, um, times that you can shoot your shoot which is called your shooting light um for example in missouri it's 30 minutes before sunrise and then 30 minutes after sunset uh but they just changed it 
recently um, in either Arkansas or Missouri, one, that it's no longer, um, and this also might be Kansas. Sometimes I have to, I even have to reference back uh, between the three states, but uh, it actually ends at sunset. Um, and so just being aware of where those resources are and where to find them based on your state. Um, another thing is limits. All of the pages regarding each state's requirements and limitations for species, hunting seasons, any of that you'll be able to find online on those websites. But as far as seasons go, for example, Missouri has three zones. Well, I pay attention to three zones and it's the north, middle, south zone for Missouri. Um, I live uh, partially in the middle zone uh, and my parents are around the south zone. And so I have to play, pay very close attention to those opening days because they're different as well as the like the last day of season is different as well. So along with that, uh, seasons for waterfowl very are, are very different from deer season or um, like you have a archery or a rifle season for deer, whereas waterfowl, it's just uh, shotgun season all the whole time. And so paying attention to those things is is intimidating for for somebody going into it. Um, the easiest way to keep up with that is to start small, start with one type of game in one location, document it somewhere in your notes, something like that, and then do that with every state that you're interested in. Um, and then as far as license, you mentioned licensing and like stamps and requirements and certifications, um, as far as those go, it's really important to pay attention to that on the website as well. For example, Missouri requires hunter education course and certification, whereas Arkansas does not. And so paying attention to that, knowing what you need, um, you have to have a federal stamp uh, for any state that you're waterfowl hunting in, but then you also uh, tend to have to have a state stamp and then your actual license uh, for waterfowl. And so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and shameless plug here again, I, this is just another reason why I'm excited about some of the resources we're putting together for these women's hunts that are going to be accessible to anyone that that wants to access them. But information on where to find, uh, how to buy a license, how to find your hunter, the best hunter safety course, what are those limits, uh, the time of day, the seasons, dates, um, all of those things will be easily accessible to reference as well. So, no, and I'm all for the shameless plug. So, definitely <laughs> keep going. Um, yeah, I will say, um, it if you're listening, it's like every state is different. And I feel like, uh, again, I feel like waterfowl is probably the the one I go to Virginia's like DWR the most for just because they have it separated by you know different birds and you know it's just uh, I think it's a lot more complicated honestly than than whitetail or turkey or anything like that um we do have some questions like throughout these topics so um just if you're a new hunter you're probably having these questions too so the first one I have for these kind of topics we just went over was what to do if I'm not sure if a bird is in season um, I feel like identifying birds as they're flying was a huge thing where 
I'll never forget like the first couple of times I went waterfowl hunting and, you know, my buddies would be like, oh, like that was a mallard or like, oh, that was a buffalo head or, oh, that was a wood duck. And I just remember thinking like, are y'all making this shit up? Cause like, how the hell can you tell? And then it was like, after I kept going and like, I got more familiar and then I could kind of tell, and it's like, it's still like a learning thing, but, um, do you want to answer that question? Yeah, sure. Um, so I can personally only speak for the Midwest states of Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas. Uh, you'll primarily see mallards, teal, woody, um, some pintail, um, and then your like spoonies as we call them, um, which are your shovelers. But um, <laughs> this is such a fun question, mainly because what, what you said is exactly true. It is so hard to figure out how the birds fly, like what species of birds fly specific ways. Um, and as you see it and may are able to make the connection, it's a lot easier, but you know, your teal are a lot smaller, faster, dartier birds. <laughs> Woodies are, are probably the next similar as far as the, the birds that I listed. Um, and so I think studying 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 whether it's videos on youtube or reading and researching backgrounds for for patterns that are pretty scientifically proven amongst these species um but also just learn by doing i mean you're not ever gonna no one's ever perfect ever but they're especially not great at something the first time that they do it nine times out of ten you get some few a few lucky people but it just takes practice and i would also like to use this question and this answer to say that i say this all the time but there is such value in having a staying power and a grit and a grind to you when you are passionate about something so not getting it's hard not to get discouraged but really just fighting the good fight and just keeping on even when it's discouraging and you and you feel like you're never going to figure out what birds are flying what. And I say that because I've been there and it has been hard for me. And that's where, where I lean into the people that I'm hunting with. And I ask questions. I ask, you know, what are some of those identifiers that would set a mallard apart from a teal or a woody or honestly a hen apart from a drake? A hen is the female bird. A drake is the male bird. Um, and And figuring out, you know, how do I identify those? Because not only are the the species the varieties of the species different but the hens and the drakes also look very different um and so understanding that um some of the the species have or some of the states have limits on how many hens you can kill uh per species and so that's even another aspect of that you have so, to like keep track of like while you're hunting like you yeah. are, it's always like you're counting kind of again like okay like we have this many hens left like be careful like you yeah. have to be very very uh aware of like what you've already shot um and what's already in the water if you're if you're waiting for your dog to go get those ducks so it definitely is a complicated thing absolutely and and with that uh well as far as birds and if they're in season and and identifying researching and the website the state websites but um, when we're talking about limits this is always a fun conversation uh to have it, and it's honestly fun to experience in the moment because a lot of times when you're with a group of people or you're with an outfitter even those guides are keeping up with those numbers for you 
um, and, and helping identify those. And, and a lot of times in videos, uh, I, there's a specific video that I'm thinking of and I was Canada goose hunting and we had like two birds until we were at limit and a whole big group came in. We had a few clients with us. Uh, and you can hear in the video, don't shoot, don't shoot. We're at limit. Don't shoot. Um, and you just really have to be mindful and pay attention to what your guides are doing. Um, and, and help them out too. Like, don't be afraid if, if you aren't sure if your guide is, is, has the numbers right or, um, anything that, that, that you might think could be wrong. I can speak for myself only in this instance, because I know this is not the case in a lot of ways, but I am not going to be offended if you're like, Hey, are you sure we have uh, two hens and, and not three? Like, just want to make sure you can gut check me for sure, because I'm human. I make mistakes, but I do think it is important. You have to pay attention and you have to keep up with those numbers. Otherwise you run the risk of, of first and foremost being unethical and not treating the sport with respect, but also you can get fined <laughs> and get in very big trouble. So um, I know that I don't want to ex- have that experience um, and I'm going to do everything that I can to, to prevent it, but just paying attention to numbers is number one. Gotcha. All right. Um, next topic, I guess we're going to get into is where to hunt. If you're trying to get into waterfowl and it's like, you know, where do I go if you don't own land or maybe you own land, but it's not the type of land that's going to actually hold ducks. Um, you need a very specific like kind of environment and depending, you said you're in Kansas and I'm in Virginia. So, uh, we're definitely seeing different ducks, um, cause it's all based on migration patterns and what kind of ducks are coming in. But, um, you said you hunt private and public land for, for ducks. When I'm hunting ducks, it's, I, again, I'm, it's mostly private, um, which is a switch for me because I feel like I hunt public and federal land for everything else. So, um, yeah, do you want to get into kind of the private versus public debate? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's always like a beast of its own. Each of them are a beast of their own individually. And so, um I would, I would say I'm going to talk about them individually a little bit because I think that'll be easiest, but private land, uh, obviously someone owns it. There's a few ways that people go about this, um, personal experience. My family owns, uh, row crop and timber. So when I'm around my parents, obviously I don't have to ask permission or anything like that. It's just, it's family land. That's great. Most of the time, that is not the case, uh, and you have to ask permission. And so ways to go about this are numerous. Some are good, some are not. Um, It really just depends, and it's probably a conversation to dive into another time. Uh, But I would say the biggest difference is you have to make sure you have permission. If you're on private land, you scouting is another big thing. Um, and I don't know that we'll get into that either today, but, uh, that's the biggest, biggest difference is you have to have permission for that land. Um, whereas our public land, uh, usually there's a ton of people. There are, 
you know, some of them are WMAs or uh, we call them WEHAs. They're, it's W-I-H-A, and I do not know the acronym off the top of my head. I was going to say I've never heard that, um, uh, that before. <laughs> we have WMAs uh, over here. Yeah, we we have WMAs. Um, the, it's a walk-in hunting area, I think, is what that stands for. Don't quote. Don't take my word as gospel here, but... <laughs> Uh, for the most part, the difference is the amount of people that have access, um, much, much more for public. Also, um, just the amount of land, usually, it's usually conservation area. There's usually, well, depending on the state, again, there may or may not be refuge areas for the wildlife. And so uh, paying attention to where you can hunt because you cannot hunt refuge. Like, I was going to say, a lot of the places yeah. I hunt deer for, um, they are like wild, like the federal places. It's like wildlife refugees. So like you can hunt um, whitetail there and turkey, but you can't hunt ducks or waterfowl. And the amount of birds like you'll just see or even hear like while you're hunting deer. And it's absolutely crazy. Just like the the craziest birds like I've ever seen and it's a place it's specifically because like they know they're safe there like they are not getting hunted there they have no pressure like yes crazy pressure is a pressure is a another beast of its own I did I don't know because I grew up hunting in Arkansas I feel like pressure is something that is just really irritating to me but also I'm still hunting so i playing a part in that as well um but you'll see videos of you know hundreds of boats just racing and going to duck holes in public land and so um I think there with that being said with public land I think there's an added level of danger um and and just that much more awareness and the ability to be comfortable and have situational awareness of what's going on and what's happening that you need whereas with private land if your landowner hasn't given multiple people permission which in some cases they do um but in a scenario where you're the only one that has permission to hunt that land that's not really something you have to worry about um i think a, a thing that maybe makes them similar um is the fact that sometimes hunters don't always pick up after themselves and so that not only provides like a discord between relationships of hunters and farmers, uh, which is another shameless plug for my Miss Ag platform of talking about hunter hunting conservation in the American farmer, but that land and and really the whole idea of conservation in itself, trying to preserve the land, respecting the farmer that gave you permission to hunt on their land and picking that up, but also respecting the the groups and organizations that work on conservation for public areas, the public areas themselves, and just the land and the and the game that you're hunting. I mean, I I can't emphasize it enough how much I think that the sport, the game that you're hunting, and just the situational aspect of things deserves respect. Um, whether it's just you it has a lot to do with character and integrity in general and being who you are in in private 
as you are in public and when so no one's watching I feel yeah. like that character is like the biggest thing for me it's like what yeah. do you especially in the age of social media like what are you doing when no one's watching I feel like that is like yeah. when you really like see people's like true form well, and that goes back to even like what we're doing with the meat after we've killed the game. And and this isn't necessarily on the topic, but like, are, are you taking that home and prepping that in the kitchen or are you throwing it out of the back of back of your truck? Because I know people who have done both. Yep. A hundred percent. And like social media, you would never know that. Or if they're talking to somebody, you would never know that. Um, and I, I think that that has some, a, plays a big part in it. Even if you're, for example, um, a couple outfitters I know donate snow goose season specifically because there is no lemon in Arkansas, have taken the meat and donated it to homeless shelters, church pantries. Um, they, it's going somewhere, even if they're not eating it because you cannot physically eat an, like 300 birds <laughs> worth of meat. Yeah. Um, but it's going somewhere and it's, even with, I mean, I've seen them feed it to their livestock, which is honestly fine with me too. I know that's sometimes controversial to some, to some people, but if you have that much meat and you're going to have to pay to feed your livestock anyway, whether it's, you know, in whatever way that is. I was going to say like, can I ask if, why is that um, considered a controversial topic? I, I think it's probably more so the same way that some people find eating meat in general controversial. Okay. I I don't know if it's just not an well-known or well-accepted practice. Okay. Do that? Yeah. I don't know. In in my opinion, I would every day of the week prefer somebody feed that meat to their livestock than to throw it out the back and let it rot. Yeah. I was going to say like my favorite thing with like scraps that like I'm not, especially with venison and just like the bones, if I'm not making broth or if I just have like too much, like favorite thing to do is give it to like my chickens because they go crazy for that. And even like fish scraps, like if I fillet a fish, like they get the rest because like they love that shit. Honestly, I feed my dogs some of the meat. Yeah. Like I'll cook it and have leftover. Maybe the, I had too much to just keep leftovers or for Mm. Maybe it won't fit in my freezer because I don't have a big freezer. Like I'll feed it to the dogs or give it to my neighbors. Or there's this uh, cute little old lady I grew up going to church with. And uh, she used to bring us like vegetables from her garden. And my dad would return the favor by giving her duck meat or her, him and his buddy would give that duck meat to the old ladies that, that liked it. And so I don't care how it's being consumed as long as it's being consumed and not wasted. Um, and so going back to the other topic, just real quick about public and private, um, just picking up after yourself was the other thing that I was going to talk about your shells. If you can find them immediately after you shoot, I try to pick mine up. If you're in a blind, it's a little bit different because they're usually, you know, the casings are just in the blind and you can pick them up later. But if you're hunting a, a field blind or a pit or just in the open layout blind, um, anything like that, just pick up after yourself, take care of the land. Um, and for private land, respect and appreciate uh, the farmer that has allowed you to come on his land and hunt. So I think that's, that's the important thing there. And I'll definitely add to that too. Um, if you're hunting like over water in a boat, um, that was like the first thing I noticed. It was like the shotgun shells were, were in the water. And I'm like, hey, like, 
what are y'all doing with these? And some, you know, some people I went with, they're like, oh no, it's like, you don't do anything with them. And I was immediately bothered. I was like, I will jump out of this boat and <laughs> get all of these. Um, but if you're listening and you're kind of wondering how to avoid that, they do make these like cool mag, like it's a stick with a magnet on the end and it's super easy. Like, so if you're just, yeah, if you're with someone and they're not doing that, it's like purely out of uh, laziness and I think disrespect of the environment. But um, the whole private land like access thing, it's definitely, um, I had so many people, they're like, what do you mean you can't find land? Like you live in the middle of nowhere. They're like, just drive around, like look for geese in a field and just go up to the the owner and like ask for permission. And to me, like I had just started hunting when I, when I heard like this crazy thing that people do. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like you just like, you just go in their driveway and you go up to the, their house and like you knock on their door, bother them on a Saturday. And like, you're just like, Hey, like, can I hunt here? Like, that's crazy. Like who would say yes to that? And you'd be surprised. Like, uh, like that's how a lot of people get permission. And uh, I don't know if it was like the social anxiety for me or like just being like, you know, a solo female. And I'm like, I'm just gonna like knock on their door. Like, that's crazy. And all my guy friends, like cause all my, you know, waterfowl buddies, like they're all men. They're like Elizabeth, like they're used to us, like yeah. they're used to us knocking on their door. Like if they see like a little girl, like just walk <laughs> up to, and if you're just like, you, you're nice. Like if you just talk to them, like a farmer is going to be more than happy to let you come on his land <laughs> and shoot some birds so if you're listening um I can't even say like do it because I'm telling you to because it's something I definitely still struggle with like I think it's an intimidating thing but um maybe you'll be braver than me I think you you know definitely it's worth trying I've done it once and it was for it was for deer um and he said yes but then he never called me so I was like oh it's kind of a win and then I was like oh okay all right but I think it's funny they're honestly I have too many stories to share about asking permission for land, but a few things for someone who's new in hunting, uh, especially being a female in this instance, a lot of the, if you think about it, farmers are usually in the field leading up to hunting season. It's their busy season, whether they're fertilizing, they're irrigating, or they're starting harvest they're out in the fields. And so their wives are either at their, their own jobs or especially in the evenings and the weekend, they're home alone. Maybe they have small children. Maybe they have kid, they're empty nesters at that point. But these, these moms are usually moms and wives are home alone. And so in my experience, I almost get automatically volunteered when I go with my friends to ask permission because as a, as a female, I'm thinking about being home alone, maybe with small children, maybe not. But if a a younger or middle-aged or, you know, whatever that looks like man comes knocking on my door, I'm not always going to be comfortable answering that. And I can definitely think back to my mom being home alone while my dad was out in the fields and people knocking on our door, maybe to hunt, maybe to not. But and her being like, we're not, everybody hide, we're not home. <laughs> Nobody go to the door. Nobody yeah. make a sound. And so I, I almost feel like it gives you kind of an advantage as a female to knock on the door. And there, again, there are so many, many stories, but I, there have been times where my guy friends will say, we're not going, we're not stopping and asking that farm owner's permission because they've always said no. 
And I fought back and said, no, let me add, let me just see the worst at the end of the day, it's important to remember, remember that the worst thing they can say is no. Yeah. That's it. Yep. I have never been, I have never been yelled at. I've never been attacked. I've never been threatened, anything like that. Another caveat to that would, my suggestion would be to go in the daylight that way. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it gives you that advantage. And so I, the worst they can say is no. And so don't let um, that stop you. Don't let it hold you back. Um, And chances are you'll never see them again if they say no anyway. So you're not losing anything. And I would also like to give a shout out to my mom, who I apparently inherited my PI genes from uh, and have found numerous farmer contacts on Onyx. So Onyx is a hunting app. I'm not sure um, if we'll go into that either. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that's uh, what I used to. The there's usually information for the farmers if that is public information Mm -hmm. Um, and I just go into private investigator mode finding a phone number or um, Onyx actually lists uh, an address usually. I feel like the problem I always run into it's like a lot of the farms and fields around here like it's always a PO box and I'm like okay well like I feel like face-to-face is a lot you're gonna get a lot better reaction than um, than like just a letter you know. I feel like that's the only thing, but Onyx is absolutely like just if, yeah, it's a great tool, great resource to use. Like usually just drive around looking for birds and like you can just pull up the spots and and get all the info. For sure. And a a lot of times, well, in the states that I'm familiar with, a lot of times their houses will be, will like have their information, their name on Onyx and it'll be close to one of their other fields. So I just use what you have and the the information and the um, access that you have on an app like Onyx and, and see if you can find the information that you need. But with that being said, the, at the end of the day, the worst they can do is say no. And so I would let that hold you back if you're new and trying to figure out. Now, I will say, and feel free to add to this as well, but uh, what would Actually, this is going to be a question I ask you. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> what is your, also, we could, I feel like you and I could talk all day anyway, not even on a podcast, but yeah. what is your go-to suggestion for framing a question of, hey, can I hunt to one of these landowners? Like, how would I ask? Yeah, like, yeah, maybe give like an example. Oh, so I always go into like the route of like, when I do ask, it's like, hey, like, you know, I started hunting in 2020. Um, A lot of it, like I'm learning to do on my own. um, And finding access is a a large part of that. Like, um, you know, does anyone already hunt here? Do you and your family hunt here? Because I feel like that's usually if they're gonna say no to you, it's because they already have people hunting there. So I feel like that's always a good uh, question to start with. and then I kind of just ask for permission. Also, I feel like trading is a really good um, go-to. I've seen work with a lot of people. It's like, hey, like I'll pick up trash up until the, you know, 
up until the season during the season after um because a lot of farmers like they have a lot of land to cover and that's that's so especially like near roads i feel like you always see just like ditches like filled with trash um depending where you live so um try to like try to sweeten them up a little bit um and a lot of people i do know that have permission to hunt private like around christmas time like they always bring them like either bring their wives like a bottle of wine or they bring them like a nice bottle of liquor or even just trading the meat is a big thing it's like hey you gave me permission so here's some deer meat here's some duck meat anything like that absolutely and i think just respect like respecting them i'll i'll kind of go off of what you said too i think the reason i asked you that is because i i think my situation and maybe my approach varies based on what that looks like because I do have an ag background and a farming background. And so that's a pretty good connection. So for those of you who might be new and do have an ag background, that's always a good resource to kind of dig into and share with them. Um, And I would just say to frame it as in, hey, look, at the end of the day, this is your land. It's your decision to say yes or no. I would really appreciate it. These are the things that I can do in return for you, such as picking up after myself. I can come volunteer, like you said, with picking up the trash. Um, I mowed a yard once for permission. That was <laughs> interesting. Um, giving the meat back um, and then just being appreciative and showing that respect in how you handle their land. Um, and and how you talk to them, follow up with them after, let them know how your your season went and how their land allowed you to have that kind of season. I, I think that is what creates a lasting relationship and not just a one-time, yes, you can hunt today or yes, you can hunt this season type of thing. You want those farmers to want you to come back. They You want them to say, you know what, they were a really nice young per, young man or woman, like I would, I really enjoy visiting with them. I know that, that the next generation will be okay. If there's a few more people like that, that's what you want to leave these farmers with is with that impression. But also um, there was something else I was going to talk about too, with permission. Oh, well. Maybe it'll come to me. Maybe it won't. It doesn't really matter. I was going to say, I feel like when you do get, per, when I, I, again, I'm going off of a lot of the friends I've hunted with and what my friends have, you know, their experiences with getting permission. I feel like once you get permission, as long as you like, again, like you said, respect them, maintain a good relationship, communicate with them a lot. Um, it, it's not just going to be like a one season thing. Like, I feel like I know people who for years have gotten permissions from the same farms um, to hunt every year. And so it's, it's definitely worth looking into if you're struggling, either struggling to get onto public land for waterfowl, or if you're just in general, trying to find some private land that's less pressured. I agree. Um, the other thing with that is that, um, Oh, I had it and then I lost it. I literally had I can, like, see the thought like going in and then just like skirting you, up. You said what you were talking about and I was like, oh, that's what it was. It came to you. And it wasn't, it wasn't respect or anything. Oh, I'm, okay. It's back. Not it. Yes. So going back to the conversation about conservation and the reason why snow geese don't have a limit is because they're invasive. Well, it's the same way with a lot of these species. The reason we can hunt them like we can is because they're ruining crops or they're they're ruining something. <laughs> they're causing harm to these 
farmers' crops. Um, and I know specifically for us, geese, uh, deer, raccoons even. Yeah. And things like that are coming into the to the crops and, and harming them. And so a lot of these farmers have no reason to say no. It's just when you abuse that relationship yeah. and that, that permission that it kind of goes downhill from there. But I would say around here, groundhogs are a really big problem too. So I know like if you're hunting like private land and usually a farmer will tell you, it's like, hey, you can definitely deer hunt here. But if you see a groundhog, like kill it. Like they'll, like, they'll come with like requests kind of like that. So um, you know, they're definitely going to call in some favors if they're giving you permission to hunt. For, sure. For the next section, I think we're going to try to just like rapid fire some of these questions. Um, and again, this is for the very like new hunter, like fresh rookie hunter um, into waterfowl. And some of these questions like definitely deserve a longer answer. Um, but we're just going to, again, we're going to try to like rapid fire, um, <laughs> and she'll answer some of these questions. I'll answer some of these questions and we'll just see how many we can get through. Um, but the first one would be like, how do you know when to shoot? Uh, oh, this is such a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I know from like my experience, like it really is like if, so, at least when you know it depends on the group you're with but someone's gonna call it like if you've never gone on a waterfowl hunt um they're gonna call it and they're gonna let you know prior like hey when I say take them like you can start shooting um so it'll be something fast like that um and I know it just depends on like the environment of like where you're hunting too and what different birds are coming in like some are gonna come like cupped up they're like they're getting ready to land and then you, you'll y'all take them um you know some birds are just a lot faster and they're not gonna come by like that and you kind of shoot them as they're as they're kind of flying by um I know the hardest thing for me was I mean it's it's like really difficult not knowing yardage and like I feel like some birds I'm like oh like that seems pretty close like can I shoot them and all my friends would start laughing and they're like absolutely not like you would never hit the bird that far and I'm like oh like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So. This is not yeah. a rifle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, that's a good call out as far as uh, a cube from kind of, and whether it's a guide or whether it's a one person in your friend group, there's usually an established like caller mm -hmm. and caller that is, that is going to let you know when it's time to shoot. But for someone new coming into that, when you experience that, pay attention and observe to what, the atmosphere was like and what the situation was like in order that led up to the caller calling the shot um, and then furthermore just ask them like hey why did you call it when you called it and and sometimes they have an answer and sometimes they don't and yeah. you just keep asking yep and a lot of these are like super subjective um they're just based on experience and I feel like waterfowl especially anytime I go with someone new it's like they just, it's like they have a completely different way of doing it. And they do it like that because like, that's what works for them. Um, hunting subjective. And I think you're right. It's like, if you ask someone a question, sometimes like they're going to have a, you know, a very detailed explanation of why they're doing it. And sometimes they're just going to be like, this is how I do it. And this is what feels right. And this is like, I'm not changing it. It's like, no matter what you tell, like, they're like, this is what I do. Yeah. Or this is what my dad and my grandpa did. Yeah. This is what I do. And God forbid you question me. I, <laughs> it is really, it is really funny to see that some, and that kind of goes back to that 
as far as sometimes you'll have an answer, sometimes you won't. Um, and if if you are with people who won't answer your questions, find new people to go with. Yeah. And that is as nicely as I can say that. Yeah. No, I think that's that's like perfect advice, especially if you're new. Like I feel yeah. like it's so it's a yeah, I feel like it's a weird thing when I do ask a question and I don't get like the the response I'm like really like hoping for like I I think when you're trying to learn something new it's like you not that you expect everyone to be a teacher but I feel like it's just kind of it's not too hard to at least give a little little bit and I feel like either some people are just stubborn and they like want to hold on to their info or they're just like not receptive um to teaching but I think you're right like you can learn a lot if you're around the right people this is also a time to plug in that asking where someone hunts is not normally handled or accepted well outside of the people that you are hunting with and so framing that question or finding people to hunt with can sometimes be tough but just again goes back to the permission side keep asking until you get a yes yeah and I feel like that's kind of like um I would say that's hunting etiquette in general like that's a big thing um people don't want to give up their spots um and I feel like sometimes there were questions I was asking early on in my hunting career that I didn't know like because you don't know until you ask so it's like sometimes I would just ask because it like popped into my head and like then people will kind of like tell you like hey like yeah, like maybe reframe that a little better. Yeah. Or if you, okay, I will also say this and to not get long-winded again, but I would frame it in a way that like, hey, I'm starting, I'm new. This is what the information that I'm looking for. And that gives the other person an opportunity to understand where you're coming from. It's not like you're 20 years into hunting and asking, old Tom over there, hey, where where are your hunting pins? Like, where are you hunting at? They they already have that preface understanding that you're new and you may not understand fully. And then you, of course, you have people that are just jerks. Like, yeah, we'll have that. But that's not a personal thing. That's a them thing. And don't let it discourage you or make you quit. I agree. All right, back to rapid fire. <laughs> We're not starting off too great. Uh, when and how to call? I would say, uh, you know, again, personal experience. I everyone's different. It's all subjective. I would say, a lot of the time, people will sometimes tell you like less is best. Um, you don't want to overcall, and I think you have early season birds are going to respond to calling a lot differently than late season. Absolutely. Um, early season, you can get by with a, a little bit more call-in than you can later in the season. By the time it's late in the season, these ducks know that it's not ducks making these noises. Um, I would also ag- tend to agree that less is best. Um, with that being said, I think there is a time and a place for different types of calling, different types of calls. Um, things of that nature, nature, but I think in my experience, keep it simple, a, a few quacks here and there, like, you'll, don't be fooled by what you see on social media, you do not have to have every little trick up your sleeve with a call, um, in my experience, yeah. so I don't know if you okay. want to speak to that. 
No, I think for, um, I mean, that kind of leads us to the next question. What kind of call do I need? That would depend on if you're hunting timber or open. If you're, honestly, for me, it depends on if I'm a blonde, in a blind or if I'm hiding in a marsh, which kind of goes back to timber versus marsh. But um, I think it depends on your level. So for a beginner, um, my suggestions would tend to be a lot different. And I know this isn't a specific answer to these questions, um, which once again is a shameless plug to these resources that that are going to be coming out here in the next month um, with different gear. Uh, call suggestions will be on there. Call videos, um, how-to videos and resources will be on those um, lists and blogs as well. Um, and so I think it truly just depends on your situation, whether you need, there's a, there's a single read, a double read, there's a cut down, and there's a lot of other fancy uh, terms and phrases that go along with it. And so, um, yeah, less is best once again. I was going to say, I feel like calls in general could probably be a whole episode. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, yep. Uh, I would say next question, um, what is a spread? Um, that term and how do I set it up? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so a spread is referring to your decoys, which is the which are the fake birds that you use to kind of lure these ducks in to where you're hunting. Um, and the spread refers to how you lay those out, uh, which is dependent on things like weather, wi weather and wind, um, what direction of the sun you're facing, what direction uh you're facing gonna be shooting um towards and so there's a there's different ways to do it um this is also very subjective some people I was gonna say I feel like every single new person I've ever hunted with has their own way to set their spread like it's just always different and again like no rhyme or reason they're just like this is what I do and this is what works or this is what I haven't had good uh you know outcomes with for me for me personally if I don't pay attention to anything else I'm gonna pay attention to where the sun is and what wind what direction the wind is coming from um and Bert I'll take this time to say too, birds are birds. You can't control them. You can't hold on to them and release them and hope somebody shoots it. You, it, they're wild animals. And so you can't, you're not ever going to have the same situation twice. You can't provide this perfect scenario. And so I think expectation management is huge. Um, and so along with the spread, different strokes for different folks as I like to say it just depends um on the person on the guide for me personally those are the two things that I pay attention to the most for sure um next would be like gear so colors and camo does it matter do I need waders um and this is all dependent on your environment like where you're hunting what you're hunting in yeah absolutely um, so waders are those like coveralls with the boots attached. Um, for those of you who have probably seen them, but maybe not sure what they were, those are called waders. Those are for uh, water situations. I actually tend to wear my waders regardless of if I'm in marsh or the flooded timber. Um, where that differs a little bit is I'll wear some coveralls and just muck boots. 
excuse me, mug boots for like a cut cornfield or things like that. But as far as gear goes, uh, that's a rather lengthy topic. I, think. I feel like that in itself could be a whole nother episode as well. Sure. Um, specifically um, gear related things. So your calls, your clothes, your gun, your ammo, um, things like that. Um, I'm currently in the middle of working on a, a blog of sorts with pictures and links and recommendations for different scenarios. Um, these are going to be mainly catered to the women's hunt. So a lot of timber based recommendations, but I've actually partnered with several brands and organizations to kind of provide these women with some access to this gear. Um, so I'm really excited to, to provide that for women. Um, and that just goes back to, it is very costly to get started into hunting and to stay hunting. I would say waterfowl is, I would say the most expensive one, I, in my opinion. I agree. I would tend to agree with yeah. that. I, I think with deer hunting, you probably have a lot of initial cost, but when it comes to everything else, you're just constantly like buying stuff. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, on the whole waiters and, you know, depends where you're hunting. I'll never forget the first time I got invited to like a goose hunt that was just like in a field. And I was like, well, if I don't need my waiters, like what do I wear? And I remember I went on my Instagram and I was like, y'all, like, what do you wear if I'm not wearing my waiters? Like, and everyone was like, oh, just wear the bibs. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, I don't have bibs. Um, and this thing's like this afternoon. Um, and everyone's like, just the recommendations I kept getting and I was like y'all I was like I don't own any of that and I'm not kidding what I ended, and it was freezing I feel like with wind chill that day it was like maybe 16 degrees and like for Virginia like that's that's like that rarely rarely happens and I'm not gonna lie I ended up wearing like my snowboarding pants because like they were they, a dark tan and I just wore them with like my you know yeah, uh, my waterfowl jacket. And I was like, this is going to have to do like, and I was miserable. It was the coldest I've ever been. And the geese didn't even come in, but I'll never forget like that initial moment of like, I've never hunted this environment and I'm not familiar with what I even need to be wearing. Truthfully, I have worn my waders in plenty of dry land situations. I think I have bibs. They're not as warm as my waders and like my gear that I wear with them. And so if it's really cold, you will see me in waders in a dry field, like with no shame. And so I think not only is it important to not be afraid or ashamed to ask those types of questions, like, hey, what do I actually need? But also don't be afraid to like, don't let not having something hold you back. For, oh, for sure. Like, yeah. Work, you wore your snowboard pants like and half the time, unless you're standing in the middle of an open field or open marsh. And don't have a ton of cover. Like if you're in a layout blind and you're completely covered, or you're in a blonde period and you're covered, honestly, it doesn't always matter what you have on, truthfully. Mm -hmm. I think if nothing else, your outer layers should be camo, whether that's I know a lot of people are married to like ha have to have your marsh for your marsh areas and your timber pattern camo for your timber, but I've worn my bottom land or timber print gear in marsh and vice versa. Like, I think it's overcomplicated and maybe the feeling or the need to be like put off this certain image 
is a, made to be a little bit more important than than the actual sport itself. And so um, gear will be listed as a resource that um, I would love for anybody that's new to to take advantage of, but also don't feel like you have to break the bank to buy all of the nicest camo. Like you can make do with very, very minimal. Yeah, for sure. Um, next question. I like that you put on here bathroom breaks. Um, let's talk about it. Cause I feel like the, <laughs> the most difficult bathroom situations I've had were always waterfowl. Like I've never, it's always waterfowl. And it's, it's mostly cause I, I'm on a boat with a bunch of guys with waders on. And it's like, you can't, again, like she said earlier, your waders come up to your chest. And so it's like, it's something you have to take off completely. Um, and that's just always a difficult situation if you're a female. Honestly, even if you don't have waders on, it is so cold normally. And you're trying to like, it's just not good for anyone. But I, with waders especially, I tend to try and not drink very much just to avoid having to use the bathroom. However, depending on the situation, if you're standing in timber, there might be a, an available tree to go and like figure out how you're going to hide. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know how much like TMI information of like how no, to, yeah. I think that's the cool thing about having my own podcast. I'm like, t- there's no such thing. Like, as like, like, I mean, I've definitely hung off the side of my fair share of blondes or like, yeah. Uh, I feel like I've had friends like hold my hands and just like looking away and I'm just like off the boat just like hanging yes or like there'll be a pit line and my guy friends okay this is a really funny funny story but I went hunting with a group of guys last year and I I was like doing my own thing we were in a pit blind and all of a sudden I like turn around and all you see all you see is like seven guys like lined up nothing was showing but like all of them were peeing at the same time same time but when I have like I have to go on the side of a a um, ditch and like make sure nobody can see me because I have to get completely undressed to use the room so there's also something called a crap strap have you seen those is it the same thing as like a shiwi no oh well kind of it's like this one's for men and women Ah, oh, the shiwi. That's a good point. I yeah, I feel like I've talked about it on a couple episodes, but I bought it for, it was either like the first time I had to pee off of a boat like blind. Um, and a shiwi, basically it's a collapsible, a collapsible silicone, like literally it's like a little, like it's a little cup. And so you urinal. like, yeah, it's like, you can like, just, it like shapes to you and then you can like point where you pee so you don't really have to take everything off if that makes sense that's so not so you have one do you like like would you recommend it yes I do I use it a lot more for um I use a self climber to hunt deer and so that's just like not a situation you want to go like back down you know back down the tree just to go pee and I I have a bladder of like a five-year-old so it's like the shiwi definitely helps out during um, really any kind of hunting, especially like you said earlier too. And something I didn't realize about waterfowl, it's like usually you're on some sort of water. And so it's like, it's just so much colder than you think it's going to be. So to pull down your layers, like it's like painful sometimes, like depending yeah. on what time of the year. 
Absolutely. Okay. Well, I know what I'm adding to my uh, shopping cart when we definitely. Get I'll send you the link. <laughs> Podcast. Well, the the, the crap strap is similar. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's like a a strap that goes around your back and it hooks to a tree, so you just lean and like it's for it's for using the bathroom. Um, but yeah, I got the biggest kick at Delta Waterfowl. They had one set up and it was like this mannequin with like using the crap strap. It was so funny, but like genius. <laughs> Fantastic. My rule of thumb is I don't drink, I cannot drink coffee before I go out into the blind because yeah. it would be a much worse situation than figuring out how to pee. So yeah. <laughs> I feel like coffee and Red Bull, you have to be careful. Definitely. Um, the next one I love that you put on here. Um, can you talk and how loud? Cause that was something I you know, I had no previous experience with hunting. So I feel like whitetail, I got to learn a little bit. And then turkey was a little different. Well, I think what I love the most about waterfowl is like, as long as they're not coming, as long as the birds aren't like dumping down on you, like you can talk pretty liberally, I think. Absolutely. I think that's probably why I enjoy waterfowl hunting more than deer hunting because I am like I am a social butterfly and even though I hunt by myself and I don't necessarily talk when I'm doing that when I'm with my friends it's really nice to be cooking some biscuits and eggs and bacon in in the kitchen stove in the blind or or just chit chatting and catching up with them that I probably haven't seen since last duck season um and just being able to have that social aspect um of course when you get ducks close um you you want to be quiet you don't want to you don't not only want to be talking um you also don't want to be looking up so a lot of a lot of times a guide or someone will be like oh there's birds on top of us and your first reaction is to go where like (laughs) let me just look straight up um it's a lot easier and I picked this up a couple of years ago, instead of trying to look up and watch the birds, whoever your caller caller is that's calling the shot, watch their eyes. Watch where their eyes are going. And and if you can't see the birds, it's hard to tell where they're at. And when a caller says, take them or kill them or shoot, it's hard to know where you're going to be shooting. And so being able to follow your God or your the person that's calling the shots eyes and just body it will help you find those birds when he does call the shot. Yeah, I remember seeing that tip, um, I think over the summer randomly, like on some social media. And I was like, that's like, that's crucial. That's a game changer. Like it, it lets you focus on something, but you're not immediately, you know, showing your face and looking up. Right, right. Um, next question. Do I need ear protection? Ah. I like that you put this on there because I think that was something I like initially was surprised on when I started hunting waterfowl. Like I expected, I expected people to, I guess, like care about their hearing. Um, But to be honest, it's like, it's something I rarely, like rarely see. I think I've seen it a lot more recently. And this is one thing that this is probably the only thing from what we've talked about where I'm going to tell you to do as I say and not as I do invest in good hearing protection that is actually on my list for for investing in this year is a good set 
of okay. hearing protection. Um, but even the 50 cent plugs are going to be better than nothing. Hearing aids are a lot more expensive than, than hearing protection. And after a season of listening to shots, I can tell that my hearing has been affected. And so um, once again, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah. And I would um, definitely take the time and plug walkers um, because I feel like, you know, those 50 cent plugs, like it, it just makes it hard to hear in general, um, where I feel like walkers, it's really only, um, it's, it's muting out that big bang sound. So like I could whisper and you're across the blind and like, you can still hear me, but it's, you're not hearing that big bang. And so, um, and they also, they started making like the small ones too. And I, again, do as I say, <laughs> do, because I, do I wear them while hunting? No, but like if that was one hearing protection I was going to use, it's going to be walkers. And I take them to the shooting range, but I just, it's just something that's never in my blind bag. And, um, and yeah, I probably, I definitely probably should because uh, again, I'm newer to hunting, but sometimes I'm around people and I'm like, man, like how can they hear me if they've been hunting since they're 10? And they've just like, you know, exposed their eardrums to the sound constantly every year. Like, I just can't imagine. Right, right. I, I know we're rapid firing. I just want to also take this time back to bathroom breaks very briefly. And I say this because I say this because I've gotten this question a ridiculous, like a ridiculous amount of times. But for us girls new to hunting, hunting in general, whether you're seasoned or whatever. Um, we all have a surprise that comes every month. Like, how yeah. do you deal with that? Um, yeah. and, and not to go too far into it, but like that goes back to cleaning up after yourself. Um, and I feel like I would be remiss to say, uh, to not bring that up and touch on that is to just clean up after yourself regardless. Don't let it stop you from going. Yeah. That's by sure. no means what I'm saying, but like, let's take care of, also, I mean, if we do want to get like, you know, in, into it, I don't mind. Um, I realized when I started hunting, a menstrual cup was like the way to go. Um, and I'll just say that because like a tampon only gives you a certain amount of hours. And I feel like if you do have a heavier period, you're going to bleed through them. A menstrual cup, like I, I've never had a problem with it. And like they literally last up to 12 hours. Like I've never hunted anywhere where I'm out there more than 12 hours. So um, that doesn't even involve cleanup. Like you're good to go from the time you get there, the time you get home. So if you are planning a longer hunt, um, I know a lot of women are like intimidated by them and it is kind of a scary thing to start, but start using, but I swear by them. So I definitely think they're the way to go. And also I think they're more like environmentally friendly than like tampons or anything else. Yeah. Elizabeth, the shameless plugs for women. I know. I need to start dropping the link. Honestly, I'm going to throw some of these links on my resources for gear because for sure it's a game changer stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a huge difference. I think just the time limit itself. It's like, it's really worth it. No kidding. Um, last couple of questions, because um, I do want to get into, I, we have a lot more, but I think the main reason I hunt is for food. Um, and so I do want to talk about um, bird, birds are different. And so how do you know, like, what can you eat or just what can you eat in general? Um, I feel like that was something I didn't realize before I started hunting ducks was like every duck tastes different. And some people shoot some birds that they have no intention of eating. So let's get into that. Yeah, sure. 
Um, teal, woody, and mallards tend to be those species that you see most of the time that people are eating around where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can eat any of it, like obviously, and you should. You can eat any of it. I think yeah. it's just. It depends because I uh, one of my videos blew up for a buffalo head recipe, and that's usually that's a diver duck. So it's just a really it's same as like merganser, like it's just a really fishy duck. And a lot of people they, they they're called trash ducks, like they're fun to shoot at, but like people aren't really eating them. And the recipe blew up because a lot of people were like, "That's disgusting." But I think it depends on the duck. Like it just requires a little bit more love. It requires a little bit more either, you know, marinating it, brining it. Um, it just, it's still edible. You're just, you need a little bit more time and you need to mess with it a little bit more. Yeah. It's all, it's all in the preparation and that goes, that goes for any duck, but also if you have tried to cook some of those ducks that are, that aren't as good, you know, aren't as easy to taste good. Um, try making jerky out of it. Try making like hamburger meat out of it. Like there are ways to spice it up and change it up and, and ways of preparing it that will make it good. Uh, Pinterest is a really good resource for recipes. A lot of these um, hunting TV shows um, are good resources for that as well. Um, I just like to Google different types of recipes and try one till I find it, find one that I like. Yeah. Duck jerky is one thing I haven't tried yet. Um, but it's something I kind of want to, cause I feel like that, that would be an easy go-to. What's your favorite duck to eat? If you don't mind me asking. Teal. Okay. Teal. That's- and, and I know dove isn't technically a waterfowl, but honestly, dove and teal are my favorite. Okay. So I haven't, I haven't tried either. Um, I was hoping like this, yeah, I was hoping this fall dove would be something I'd get to try, but it just hasn't lined up yet. But, um, and teal is just a bird. Yeah. I haven't had the opportunity to really hunt yet. Um, I'd say my favorite, you know, and it's really just based off the kind of ducks we have around here, but I would say wood ducks. Like I'm choosing a wood duck over a mallard any day. Like it's just, I could eat wood duck every day, I think. If you like wood duck, you would like teal. They're very, very similar. Very similar. Um, dove, there's people tend to think that the only way to prep them is through dove poppers, but that is so, like there are so many other ways yeah. to do it. My 16 year old brother Trace uh, actually grilled some like dove nuggets last season, and they were some of the best like bird meat that I've ever had. They were so good. Anyway. Uh, Dove, teal, and woodies, probably. And I feel like the last question we get into is um, kind of still on the food topic, but processing birds. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, it looks a little bit different based on each person's end goal of how they're going to prep them and and what they're using them for. So usually you start by plucking off the feathers. I would say that at that point you can choose whether to leave the skin on or not um it also looks a little bit different if you're cooking them whole say you're grilling like a a whole duck or marinating them skin on or skin off i like to breast them out so similar to a chicken or anything else that you would breast out um and i either take the feathers off first or i just 
pull apart the skin, which is surprisingly really easy. The first time I cleaned a duck, I was very surprised at how easy it was to do. I was too, because I feel like that was, I mean, they're smaller, right? So I was like, I, I thought, I think I thought it was going to be almost like more difficult than the comfortability I had with a deer. Um, and I think at the time, I don't even think I had harvested my first turkey. And so like a, a duck really was my first like bird. Um, but it was incredibly easy. I was surprised, um, with mallard. I usually do, I do usually do roast them like whole. Um, mm -hmm. and I found, you know, plucking is the most tedious thing I'd ever experienced. Um, and I found out like, uh, by waxing them, it's like so easy. I, I put a video on YouTube. I was like, I'll do this every time. And it was honestly a lot more fun. I feel like it was a lot more satisfying, just like rip off like whole pieces of wax and it just comes off like a Brazilian. And I was like, I love this. Like, <laughs> it was so fun. I was like, now I know what my waxer feels like. I felt that. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. But I feel like with wood duck, I usually do breast them out. Um, and I usually keep the skin on and that's how I eat them like the same way every single time. Yeah. I tend to cook with the skin on, I don't always eat the skin. Usually really? that's the part that I'll like throw to my dogs, actually. Wow, I would be your dog. That's insane. I love uh, it. It's a texture thing. Okay. That's another thing that goes into the preparation is like, I have to make sure whatever it is, the texture is not something that I won't like. So prepping, I think more about texture, whereas a lot of people think about the gaminess. Yeah, like the taste. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of something that's interesting, but. Gotcha. Well, I think, I think we're at, I think we're at an hour. Um, we might be a little over, but um, again, I feel like we could talk really, really all day um, about this. And I definitely want to have you back on and get into some of these topics we touched on. Cause again, I feel like they can be like whole ass episodes. So um but I'm really proud of like what you're doing and what you're about to accomplish this year with Guns and Gals. And so um, I'm really looking forward to the resources you're going to be putting out for new hunters. And I definitely know it's going to be uh, utilized by a lot of people trying to get into the sport and lifestyle. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth, for having me. It's been so nice meeting you and chatting. Um, again, at the end of the day, if if any of this, it to me, it's not about how many ducks are killed or anything like that although the work is going to be put in to do so um at the end of the day it's about providing these women the opportunity to come out and learn and get involved um and and make lifelong friendships so um i would love to come back and chat more i know there are several things that we didn't even touch on today so i look forward to coming back eventually but yeah no thank you i'm excited yeah, absolutely. Do you want to tell people where to find you, where to find some of these resources online? Sure. So uh, the resources will be available um, on my blog within my marketing website. Um, and you'll find that at Bold Flight Marketing. And that's B-O-L-L-E-D Flight, F-L-I-G-H-T, marketing.com. Um, and then on Instagram, my Instagram profile is Julia L. Gibson. So that's J-U-L-I-A-L. And then my last name is Gibson. Um, so yeah, that's that about covers it. All, All right. of my information is on, is on my Instagram. So anything else can be found on there. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm excited to see what you put out and how everything goes. And so thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah.